Joel? How many people want Joel to record an audio Bible for you, huh? Yeah, it's awesome. Hey, my name's Jason. I'm the pastor here. Thank you for being here today. I'm going to jump into the message in just a second. But before I do, uh, when you came in, you should have got one of these white flyers. You got one last week as well, but you should get one this week too. If you'll pull that out real quick, I just want to talk about it. I was supposed to talk about it last week and I forgot. We had a lot going on. Uh, And so I I didn't get to it. But I want to just talk about this for just a second. Uh, This is an outdoor rendering. There's a couple of pictures on there, some outdoor renderings of the renovation that is going to be happening uh, in 2024. If you are new to our church or maybe just recently started coming, you may not know the the story of how we got here, but um, Hope City Church for 50 years was over on 3rd Street Road um, and then uh, outgrew that space many years ago, spent about five years looking for a church, and God graciously um, opened a door by merging Hope City Church and Harvest Church of God together, a really beautiful thing that God did, uh, bringing those two congregations together. This building that we're in uh, was the Harvest Church of God building, and so uh, brought the two congregations together. And then February 12th was our very first service together as one church here in this building. And, um, and so we knew from day one that the building was going to need some updates and uh, some modernization, some renovation. And so, uh, you know, the story I tell people all the time is I was so frustrated with God for five years because we couldn't find a building, just dead end after dead end after dead end. And now I'm so grateful because God gave us five years to save money. And so, uh, you know, that's the way God does sometimes. And so uh, we did, we actually did a building campaign in 2017 and 2018 called One More Matters. Uh, there are a lot of you who here who were a part of that. But there are more of you here who are not a part of that as our church has grown. And so with the money that was raised um, in the One More Matters campaign, plus the sale of the old building on 3rd Street Road, uh, that gives us about a million and a half dollars that we can put towards the renovation. That's not obviously all that we need. It's going to be about $3 million. Um, but we are renovating every square inch of this 25,000 square feet, including the outside. Um, and so what I love about this building is that someone back in 1992, this was built in 1992, somebody had really amazing vision. They built this room to be able to have three or 400 people worshiping together, um, which is just amazing. Uh, but over time, the building has kind of gotten into a condition, needs to be improved, and we have to get the building up to code, sprinklers, bathrooms, elevator, uh, not to mention all the stuff that we want to do, like kids' classrooms and the auditorium and a new roof and, 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 and. And so uh, we'll talk more about that over the fall, but we got the, these outdoor renderings from the architect, and we were just, our staff and team was really excited. We wanted you to see that. If you have any questions, we'd love to answer them for you. Everything we know, we want you to know. Um, we'll have more drawings as we get through the fall, the indoor uh, renderings and all of those types of things. But we're really excited because, you know, Hope City Church has been serving South Louisville for 100 years. And God willing, we want to be here 100 years from now. And a part of being here 100 years from now is having a building that will still be standing 100 years from now. And so this is a part of that. And we're really excited about it. We, want, we hope you're excited about it too. So you have that. That's yours to keep. And as we get more, um, we'll get that to you. You excited about that? I'm excited about it. It's going to be good. So um, we are taking the fall. We started a few weeks ago. We're taking the fall to uh, talk through a series of sermons that we're calling Wildfire. And it's really just a series based on the book of Acts, the stories of the first Christians. And the reason we call them the first Christians is because they were the first Christians. 
that we know of after Jesus resurrected and ascended to heaven. And so started with about 120 of them. And the reason we're taking the fall to read these stories and learn from them is because what happened with those 120 is that the message of Jesus Christ and the church, Christianity, spread like wildfire. And so what we want to know is, how did that happen? What did they have that we didn't have? What did they do that we don't do? But we, weren't, we aren't the only ones who are curious. The, the book of Acts is actually a letter. Uh, all the New Testament books, besides the Gospels, were letters written to people. And so the, the book of Acts, the actions of the first Christians, was a letter written to a guy named Theophilus, who was a skeptic. He was not a believer. And he hired, he was a government official, he hired a man named Luke, who also wrote the book of Luke, uh, at least wrote it down, um, hired him to capture these stories. And Luke believed that these stories of the first Christians were so compelling that Theophilus, who was not a believer, if he would hear these stories and hear about these first Christians, that he would be so compelled, he would be so moved, that he would become a Christian. And that's our prayer this fall, too, that there are many of you who are here today who maybe are not totally sure about Jesus, not totally sure about Christianity. Uh, but we are hoping and believing that as you hear these stories that you would uh, be compelled as well. You put your faith in Jesus. But we're also reading these stories to see what happens to people, normal, ordinary people like you and me who live in a city like we do, what happens when they become filled with the spirit and the power of God? Because it's an incredibly uh, moving thing. And when, when these first Christians were filled with the spirit and the power of God, the only way to describe what happened is wildfire. And I've shared these numbers with you each week, but I wanted to share them with you again. Started with about 120 Christians, very quickly became about 1,000 or so. By 100, by 100 AD, that 120 turned into 7,000 Christians. By 200 AD, about 200,000 Christians. By 300 AD, over 5 million Christians. And today, there are over 2 0.5 billion Christians, and that number, by the way, is growing every year by about 45 million. And this all started with 120 Christians. And at that time, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of other religions, other gods that people worshipped, from Zeus to the god of fertility to the god of rain to the god of wheat. To There was all these religions and God, but nobody worships those gods anymore. We worship our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we put our faith in Jesus Christ. There may be three or four major religions in the world, but, but Christianity continues no matter where it is, no matter what government it is under, geographically, demographically, economically, it continues to spread. And we want to be a part of that. And so, so far we've learned that these first Christians, we, we've learned two things about them. Number one, we've learned that they met together often. It was a very simple beginning that they were just committed to meeting together often. There was no, you know, NTI church, you know, there was no online degree. There was like, they just met together often. And then the next thing that we learned is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we've just said, starting out, we want to meet together often. We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage you to go back and listen to those if you haven't heard those sermons, but today we continue this. We took a break last week, but today we continue it. And we're still in Acts 2. So our last sermon, we read about the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Acts chapter 2 is kind of split up in three parts. The first part is the outpouring of the Spirit of God. The second part is the sermon that Peter preached. And then the third part is what we're focusing on today. And that is how the people responded and what their lives looked like after this experience 
on the day of Pentecost, and it was incredibly dramatic and powerful on that day. But most importantly, what happened on that day was that 3,000 people were saved and baptized. 3,000 people were saved and baptized. And I don't want to rush past that because I'm curious if you believe that that's still possible. I'm curious if you believe that that is a possibility for Hope City Church. There's probably, I don't know, about 120 or 30 people in the room today for this second service. And I wonder when you read something like that, do you believe that it's possible? That in a moment, by the power and the Spirit of God, when God breathes on a service or a sermon or a day, that thousands of people could be saved and be baptized. Maybe you're not worried about a thousand. Like maybe you've lost faith in believing that even one, your spouse or your teenage child or your college kid or your adult kid or your neighbor or your relative or your boss, maybe you have lost faith even believing that that one person could come to faith. And I think it's really important that before we talk about all of the mystical, supernatural, powerful, amazing, you know, fire from heaven and sound like a mighty rushing wind. Those things are amazing, but I think it's really important that we remember that the purpose of all of this was that people would come to faith in Jesus Christ, and 3,000 people did on that day, and I believe that is still possible. I believe that it's possible for God to do more in a moment than we could do with a lifetime of effort, better than any marketing campaign that we could ever put on or big day that we could ever put on, or any building that we could ever build, that if God breathes on it, that the people in our lives that we believe would never be interested in Jesus Christ would run to an altar, would be baptized, because that's what the Spirit of God can do. And as you read what happened on Acts 2, It wasn't because the sermon, Peter stood up and preached a sermon that day, and it was okay, but actually most historians think that it was kind of like he misquoted a couple things out of Psalms, and like he had to be nervous, I'm sure, a little bit at least. He was filled with God's power, but it wasn't because there was like a great sermon, and it wasn't because, you know, there was worship music, or they didn't have a new backdrop. This looks great, by the way, thanks to everybody who worked on this. It wasn't because they had a new building. They didn't have any of those things. They had the power and the spirit of God. And I'm just curious if you believe that that can happen, because I do, and I'm praying for that to happen. I want Hope City Church to make a dramatic, drastic impact in this community and in this city. But today's message is not just about that they were saved. Today's message is about what happens after they were saved And I want to read just a few of the verses to you one more time. Can't sound as good as Joel did when he read it, but I want to just read, uh, start with verse 42. It tells us what happened after these thousands of people were saved. It says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had, They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meal with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. 
You know, one of the tensions that every pastor feels, I certainly do, is the balance between pushing you and encouraging you. It's, it's kind of like parenting, I guess, in that way. You know, it's like, when do you push and when do you just, you know, kind of nurture and encourage? There's the great line. It was actually about the newspapers back in the early 1900s, but I think pastors have kind of adopted it. It's the great line that says, our job is to, is to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. Is the job of a pastor. I kind of like that. But um, there's this tension that every pastor feels about pushing and encouraging. And I have to admit, I, I have done it, and, and many pastors do it, that when we get discouraged or um, when we are disappointed with the current state of the church, we can tend to do more pushing than encouraging. This usually shows up in maybe some passive-aggressive comments in sermons sometimes or some guilt or some shame. Sometimes a pastor can get a little heavy-handed add a little more pressure to your life, maybe imply that you don't love God enough or you miss church too much or, you know, things like that. Football season starting, I'm sure I could get a couple jabs in about how much we care about football, you know, and how early we get to games and all that stuff. It's good preaching material sometimes, you know. Ironically, some people like that. I'm always surprised to find out that people love sometimes for their pastor to yell at them a little bit. Um, and, and, and I, okay, I guess, um, but I say all that to say this, that these verses that we read here today, they are a pastor's dream. This is a pastor's dream. I mean, it says all the believers are devoted to one another. It, it says that they're devoted to the teaching and to prayer. There's miracles and signs and wonders. Everyone's sharing what they have. They're meeting together faithfully. This is a pastor's dream. And sometimes when we hold up the current state of our church, any pastor, Comparing it to what these first Christians had, it's easy for the pastor to then say, well, you need to be more devoted, and you need to be more committed, and you need to be more generous, because that's what the first Christians did, and that's what you need to do. And there, there's some truth to that. But inside these verses, as I've been reading this all week, inside these verses, because I've actually preached these verses before, but this week, maybe a little differently than before, Inside these verses that we read, there are two descriptions that maybe you missed because it's easy to pass over in the middle of all the other beautiful descriptions. It's at the very end. I'm going to read it to you one more time. It says that they shared their meals with great joy and they enjoyed the goodwill of all the people. I've read, I've read this verse a hundred times at least. And, and maybe like you have just passed over those descriptions of great joy and goodwill. Great joy and goodwill. It's not just that they were showing up. It's not just that they were praying. It's not just that they were sharing. But that while they were doing those things, there was great joy and goodwill. Great joy and goodwill. They were devoted. They were faithful. They were committed. They were generous. And while they were doing those things, they were excited about it, happy about it. They left church in a good mood, we could say. They were, there was goodwill and great joy. And the easiest thing in the world I could do today is to read these verses to you and to push on you to be more like them, be more devoted, be more peasant, pray more, be more generous, and you should. The problem, though, is that while I could convince you to change your actions, you cannot change your motivations. You can't do it. 
Devotion, attendance, prayer, and generosity that is done with great joy and goodwill can only happen when someone has been given a new heart. When someone is being led and empowered by the Spirit. With a, without a new heart, religious activity sucks all of the life out of you. Many of you know what I'm talking about. If you're a dependable rule follower, then you can read verses like this. And like most of the other things in your life, you can uh, feel responsible to up your devotion and up your commitment. The problem is you're already doing more than everybody else. If I was to put a sign-up sheet out in the lobby that says, hey, we really have a shortage of kids' teachers. We could use some help. Do you know who would sign up? The people who are already doing everything else. (laughs) Because they would feel like, man, if they need me, I got to do it, right? Many of you, you know what that feels like. You just live with this constant pressure of like, I got to do more, I got to do more, I got to do more, I got to do more. But you would not describe all of your acts of service, all of your commitments, all of your faithfulness. You would not describe it as giving you great joy and goodwill. Maybe others of us in the room, we're not the dependable rule follower, but we're more of the free spirit. We like to shake things up. So yeah, you can convince me. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. I'll do more. I'll be more. But then I get bored with it. or I, you know, And so I feel bad because I don't want to like upset the staff. So then I just stop responding to the text or the invites or whatever it is because I don't want to have any tension in, in, in the relationship. But like it was fun at first, but you wouldn't describe it as great joy. And so if you've ever been a part of a church or a church family or some type of religious commitment, then you know what it feels like to try to do more for God because someone convinced you that's what you're supposed to do. But in your heart of hearts, it's not what you want to do. You do it. Maybe you do it. Maybe you don't. But you do it, and you, you, you wouldn't say that it results in great joy and goodwill, does it? No, it doesn't. Maybe guilt, resentment, weariness, bitterness would be better words to describe your experience. And so here we read that the first Christians were devoted to teaching and to prayer and to meals together. And they experienced miracles and radical generosity. And it would be easy to say, oh, well, that's why Christianity spread like wildfire. Because they were doing these things. But I would argue that that's not why it spread like wildfire, not because they did these things. I would say that the reason that Christianity began to spread like wildfire is not because they were doing these things, but it's because they wanted to do these things. They wanted to do these things. And this must come from the Spirit. It must come from the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about changing actions. We're talking about motivations. We're talking about devotion and being compelled to, 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 to God's word and to God's family and to God's house and all of those things. And to do those things and to actually have and feel and experience great joy must come from the spirit of God. It must compel you. It must come from a new heart that has been changed by the spirit of God. The prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament described this experience. We've read this verse a lot here uh, at Hope City for good reason. Because it describes this experience of when you become a believer, when you truly put your faith in Jesus Christ. 
Ezekiel 36, the prophet said it like this, describing this experience, this conversion. He says, and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you, talking about God, and I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. And this is what happened to those people on the day of Pentecost. We read about it today in verse 37. Let me just read it one more time. It says that Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? What should we do? Their hearts were pierced. What was normal before that moment was no longer normal. What they wanted to be devoted to before that moment, they necessarily didn't want to be devoted to anymore. They didn't know what to do. Their whole life was ahead of them, but all they knew was that something was different in their heart. It pierced their heart. Here's what I know. Everyone's busy. I got four kids, 15, 11, 8, and 7. We're busy. We got a lot going on. Here's what I know. Everybody's money's tight. And yeah, we could probably drink a little less Starbucks or eat out a little bit less or, you know, squeeze a penny here or there, but money's tight. Nobody has just a ton of extra money laying around. Here's what I know. Everybody's time is precious. You got things you want to do, places you want to be, people you want to be. And so here we are reading these verses about believers who have come to faith and are now all in. Everything about their life is focused on and centered around their faith. That this, this is not a passage about how we can squeeze in some God time or squeeze in some church time. We read about people who had an experience with God so compelling that they decided that they would base everything in their life around their faith and around people who have faith. The only way you will ever live that kind of life or be, a, be part of that kind of spiritual family is by being compelled by the Holy Spirit, having new desires, new compulsions, new devotions. It's when, the, it's when the message of Jesus pierces your heart. And it doesn't just change what you do, but it changes what you want to do and, and where you want to be and who you want to be with. This is what meeting Jesus should do in your life. When you meet Jesus, I mean really meet Jesus, it should change who you want to be and where you want to be and who you want to be with. And I'm not just talking about like activities or like what we do on the weekend. I'm talking about the kind of person we want to be, the kind of places we want to be, the kind of life that we want to build. I'm not saying that there's never any conflict or drama or church doesn't ever hurt you or disappoint you. Or I'm not saying you don't ever lose momentum. Of course not. But I am saying that faith in Jesus causes your devotions to change, your motivations to change. That, that it, it causes you to find a new people. It causes you to find a new place. Some of you have had this experience that you... You met Jesus, you put your faith in Jesus, and you tried to go back to your old life, you know, your old friends or your old activities or your old obligations, and it just didn't have the life it used to have. 
You find yourself like these people. Your heart's been pierced. Your heart's been changed. And you don't know what to do, but you know that you can't do what you've always done. And so when you put your faith in Jesus and you meet Jesus, you, you find a new people. You find a new place. A new people. A new place. And you find great joy and goodwill differently than you ever thought you would find it. I saw this picture this week. I thought it was just the perfect description of what I'm describing to you. Uh, Jessica Mattingly posted a picture of her husband. I think we have that. Y'all can throw that up back there. She posted a picture of her husband, Aaron. This is last week. Uh, we had our 15-year anniversary, and Aaron and Jessica, if you know them, they serve in our, our kids' ministry. And I'm always, I'm always a little bit leery when I highlight somebody in the church because in no way am I painting the picture that they're perfect. They actually would not want me to do that. Um, but, I, but I think it's just a beautiful depiction of this new people, new place, new thing, great joy that I'm describing. If you know anything about Aaron and Jessica, you know their story. God radically has transformed them. And, and a couple of years ago, I, I don't exactly remember when it was, but a couple of years ago, we, we made an announcement in church, actually, that we did need some help in the kids' department. And I don't think Aaron necessarily wanted to do it, but Jessica said they were going to do it, so he kind of got drugged along a little bit. And, um, and served together. And, and so Aaron's job, as they started serving, was to read the Bible story to the kids. And Aaron said, you know, he's like, one of the cool things about reading the Bible stories to the kids was I was learning the Bible stories because I didn't know the Bible stories either. And that was pretty cool. And so now, you know, here a few years later, they're still serving in that role. This is last week. He's got his new kid's shirt on. And Jessica was just posting about... What joy this brought her that the kids gather around Aaron and are climbing all over him as he's reading the Bible story. And here's what I know for certain is that if you had found Aaron about six years ago and said, Aaron, I can see the future. And on Sunday mornings, you're going to want to wake up early and go serve in kids ministry and let them climb all over you while you read Bible stories to them. You know what he would have said to you? You're insane. But see, when you put your faith in Jesus and you get a new heart, you find a new people. You find a new place. You want to do new things. What brings you great joy and goodwill is not what has always brought you great joy and goodwill. It's different. It's different. And it's not because, of course, there are times you do things because you fulfill commitments. Of course, there are things you sign up and agree to do that when the time comes, you don't necessarily want to do them, but you said you'd do it, so you do it. I'm not saying that all of life is this, you know, inspiration. Of course not. There are things we commit to do because we said we'd do them. And we do them because we committed to do them. But what I am saying is that if we read these verses this morning as more things to do, we miss the point. Instead, we should read them and see them as the desires and the devotions and the motivations of people that were changed because of their experience and faith in Jesus Christ. And so with as much love and tenderness and non-guilt and heavy-handedness as I can this morning, I, I, I want to ask you, has that happened to you? Have you had that experience? Has your faith in Jesus changed where you want to be and who you want to be with and what you want to do? Has your faith in Jesus helped you to find a new people and a new place? 
Is this place, are these people, are your commitments and your devotions the place where you're actually finding great joy and goodwill? I had this experience myself. You know, you've heard me say this before, I think, but you know, Andrew and I, when we decided that we wanted to uh, be pastors, um, we, we didn't know really a lot, but one of the things we knew is that we wanted to pastor and lead and build uh, a church that had two characteristics. Number one, we wanted to leave church in a good mood. That was just, we'd grown up in church and it seemed like people left mad. And I don't know, we just didn't want to be a part of that church. And the second thing we said is, we want, to be, we want to build the kind of church that we would want to attend even if we weren't the pastors. Now, who knows if we'd ever get that opportunity because it's weird dynamics. But point being, hey, let's just build the kind of church and be around the kind of people that we'd want to be there even if we weren't the pastor. You know, if it wasn't our job to show up, we'd, you know, we'd go, you know. And most of the days that's true. Andrew makes me come a couple times. But more than that, I'm usually always going to be here, right? Um, but about three years ago, I had the worst day of my life. I've, I've shared a lot of the story, you know, and a lot of things, but it was in deep change. But it was a Friday. It was the worst day of my life. I was having a panic, panic attacks. I, I, was, I was as fearful as I've ever been. I didn't know what the future hold. Honest to goodness, without not sounding dramatic, the truth is I didn't even know if I'd survive the next 24 hours. And I was, I was paralyzed, and Andrea was freaking out because I'm normally the one who's not freaking out. And, and she said to me, she said, what do you want me to do? And, the, and in that moment, the only thing that I knew to do is I said to her, I said, I want you to call the elders. I want you to get them together, and I want them to pray for me. I want us to get together with the elders. And it wasn't because they were the elders. It was because they were my people. And in the worst, lowest, scariest moment of my life, I didn't call my dad. I mean, I'm sure me and my dad talked, but I didn't call my dad or my brother. I felt like God had given me people, a place. We got together in the living room of Katie's house with those people, and they prayed for me, and I cried, and they cried. And I just, at that moment in my life, I wanted to be with my people. I wanted to be with my people. Do you have that? Do you have people? Do you have a place where you go, where you run to? When you're at your lowest, are those people believers? Do they have faith in Jesus? Do you have a place where you find great joy and goodwill? Or is your commitment to faith or religion or devotion, is it an obligation, right? And so if you're here, and I know there are many of you. If you're here and you would say, I don't, Jason, I don't find great joy and goodwill in coming to church or in serving or in giving. You know, we give because, you know, we, we know the church needs the money. And so we get, but I don't, there's not great joy in it. Or, you know, we, you know, we serve because you need help. But I mean, it's not great joy in it. Or I'm here because I want my, my kids to be moral kids. But I mean, it's not like great joy. If you're here and you would say, that's not my experience. It could mean a couple of things. Could mean. I'm not saying it does, but it could mean a couple of things. It could mean, first, that you have never met Jesus Christ. I mean, really met Jesus Christ. Experienced the love of Jesus Christ. What I'm not saying, I'm not up here saying like, oh, you're not really a Christian. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say to you is if you have not experienced great joy in Jesus, in God's people, in God's family, it could mean that you are still trying to save yourself. 
You are religious. You are faithful. But you have never given your life away and truly believed that Jesus Christ saves you and your moral living doesn't save you or your effort doesn't save you. You're still trying very hard to be who you think God needs you to be. And so there's no great joy and goodwill because you've never experienced the love of Jesus Christ. Your heart has never been pierced. I'm not saying you didn't come in here struggling and didn't feel encouraged. I'm not saying there wasn't an emotional moment, but I'm saying your heart has never been replaced. You've never truly put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you have never experienced great joy and goodwill, it's possible that you are religious, but you are not saved. It's possible. But there's also a lot of us in the room who would say, Jason, you're not going to psych me out. I know I'm saved. But I'm in a season of my life where I, I, I'm not necessarily coming to church or have my people or have my place and I'm experiencing great joy and goodwill. It could be that you've been hurt, you know? It could be that you've been hurt. Man, I wish that churches didn't hurt people, but churches are full of people. And people hurt people. And so maybe you've had a hurtful experience. Maybe your innocence was lost. Maybe you thought church was the greatest thing ever and Christians were the greatest thing ever and you found out that sometimes people get hurt. And so you, you, you're, you're, now, you're now kind of holding back because you don't want to be hurt again. And so you're, you're, it's not that you're not a Christian. You love Jesus, but you just don't know if you can put yourself out there again. If that's you, I, I want you to know that Hope City Church is not perfect, but we're trying. And it would mean the world to me, and it would mean the world to us if you would trust us enough and be vulnerable enough to put yourself back out there and to find your people and to find your place. I'm not telling you we're never going to disappoint you. I'm not telling you that there's never going to be conflict. That's not, of course, of course, that's, that's going to happen. But we love you, and we, we, we want to to know you, and we want to be a part of your life, and we want you to be a part of our life. And we don't want hurt to keep you from great joy and goodwill. Maybe you're not necessarily hurt, but maybe you're just kind of hiding. You know, you just, you're sticking your toe in, you know, and you're kind of here, but not here. And if somebody asks you, where do you go to church? You say Hope City, but you're not necessarily here. You're not in, you know, but you're, you know, you come, but you're not here. And so one of the reasons maybe you're not experiencing all that it can be is because you're, you're kind of holding out. And I want to encourage you to go all in. I want to encourage you to go all in. If I were to bring families from this church up on stage that are good families, again, not perfect families. We're not talking about perfection. That's, that's idealistic and sets you up for disappointment. But if I were to bring up the families up here that, you know, we would all kind of aspire to, you know, and maybe they love each other and they, they love Jesus and they're, you know, maybe financially they're doing how we would want to do or maybe relationally they're doing how we'd want to do. Or we just look at their life and say, man, I, I, that's, that's, a, that's a good life. If I was to bring those families up here, they would have all kinds of different stories and different details and different numbers of kids, maybe no kids or maybe married, maybe widowed, whatever it is. There would be all kinds of different details. But do you know what all of their stories would have in common? They would tell you that this is their place and this is their people. They would tell you that they made a commitment as a family to be all in in God's house, these people, this place. 
They would tell you that sometimes it's hard. They would tell you they have to make hard decisions about schedules. They would tell you that there are lots of times when money's tight, but they continue to be generous. They would tell you about all of the struggles and the hard times that, that, that they have gone through in order to keep this place their place and keep these people their people, but they did it. And we really believe that in the house of the God, in the house of the Lord, like the psalmist said, that those who are planted there will flourish. We believe it. We believe it. But, but I don't want you to do it because I'm telling you to do it. I'm telling you to do it, or I want you to do it because I want you to do it. That was, a, that was wrong. I'm not telling you to do it because I said so. I want you to want to do it. But that can only come from the Spirit of God. That can only come from a new heart and a changed heart. And I want that for you. I want this to be a place of great joy and goodwill. I want that for you. And I've seen it over and over and over again. That people, for all kinds of different reasons, a dream job, a dream house, a a, a relationship, or whatever it is, they decide for whatever reason, they believe it's in their best interest to to, to disconnect from their place and to disconnect from their people for, for some other thing that checks all the boxes. And I get it, and we hug and we encourage, and this place is always... But, but, they, but they, they go, they, they leave their place and their people because there's something else out there that checks the boxes. And life does not get better. Life does not get better. Even when the circumstances of life improve, there's something that's missing in their life because they left their place and they left their people. And so my prayer and my hope for you and for me is that this would be our place and this would be our people, but not because somebody guilted us into it or not because somebody pressured us into it, but because this new heart that's filled with the Spirit of God would intertwine our lives with our brothers and sisters, that this would be our family, the family of God. I'm going to close and pray for us, and in just a second we'll have the opportunity to take communion. We do this every week, but I, I don't want to rush past the fact that in the story you read today, not only were they praying, not only were they generous, but it says that they took the Lord's Supper together. Now, they did it a little bit differently than we do it now. They did meals kind of like the Last Supper, you know, if you're familiar with that story, a little more at the table, kind of breaking bread in that way. We do it a little bit differently, but it's for the same reasons. It represents the same thing. But, but in these verses, it says that they, they shared the Lord's Supper together. And we have an opportunity to do that every week here at this church. You don't have to. If it's intimidating or you don't want to participate, that's totally okay. But for those of us who do, every week there's tables set up, and we come to the table, the Lord's table, and we take the bread and we dip it into the juice. It represents the body that was broken of Christ and the blood that was shed of Christ. And when we do that, one of the things, there's many things, but one of the powerful parts about coming to the Lord's table and taking the Lord's meal is that it reminds us that of all the things in the room that could divide us, the one thing that is most important that unites us is Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what skin color you are. It doesn't matter what economic status you have. It doesn't matter what neighborhood in Louisville you live in or where your kids go to school. It doesn't matter what religion you grew up with. And if you listen to the media or the social media or your brother-in-law at lunch or whatever, he'll give you all the reasons why you should hate people or be afraid of people or keep yourself away from certain people. But every time we come to the table, 
and we take the bread and we take the juice, we're reminded that of all the things that could keep us apart, what brings us together is the life and the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I have more in common with you, no matter who you are or where you're from, brother or sister in Christ, than I do with my white 39-year-old neighbor who likes to play golf and drives a car that looks just like mine. You and I have way more in common than me and that guy because of the life of Jesus Christ. And I'm reminded of that every time I take the bread and the juice. This is my place. These are my people. Let's pray.